This is Thomas Wayne Riley, and you have found yourself in the American Southwest. Before we get started, I would like to thank all of my listeners on all of the platforms everywhere. Thank y'all very, very much. If you could please, though, leave me like a five-star review and say something nice on whatever platform that you listen to me on, that would be awesome and greatly appreciated. And if you'd like, tell your friends about me. Your friends, your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, your significant other. Just tell your dog. Tell everyone about me if you want to. I have got a lot more awesome and exciting topics coming your way after the end of this series. I promise you that. If you have any cool or strange or obscure stories, though, or really, I guess, anything you'd like to hear about, drop me a line and let me know. Go to the website and go to the Contact Me page. Lastly, if you'd like to donate to the podcast in any way whatsoever, head to the Donate page on the website, theamericansouthwest.com. I'm going to start this episode the final in the series over the Dominguez Nescalante Expedition of 1776, the final one, I promise. I'm going to start it with a little bit of a flashback, like a, a Last Crusade opening, if you will. During the research and recording of this series, I grew increasingly interested in the Don Mierre y Pacheco, and then I learned that John Kessel had written an exhaustive book over the Renaissance man in the New World. Well, at Pecos National Historical Park, I picked up that book, and I have since read it, and the story of the Don is amazing. So let's briefly talk about him, even though I have previously said I won't talk about him, or at least I said he won't get his own episode, so this will have to do. It's, it's pretty long, I, I guess. He's going to get a good, solid highlight. Just listen to what Kessel says of the amazing man. Quote, Bernardo de Mierra y Pacheco embodied the very heart and soul of 18th century Hispanic New Mexico. So, after the intro music, we will dive into Don Mierra y Pacheco before finishing the Dominguez Nescalante expedition of 1776. I'll then essentially wrap up the Spanish in the American Southwest. I mean, I've pretty much told their story, and unless something new comes along in the future, which of course it might, but... Uh, I pretty much have wrapped him up, or I will at the end of this episode. So without any further ado, let's get to adventuring. Mierda was a short, under five feet, light-skinned peninsular from Spain, which was both favored and resented in the New World, especially the New World of New Mexico, 
But on May 20th, 1741, Mierda was not yet in New Mexico, but rather he was in Janos, which is the same place that Dominguez, from our expedition, which we were taking a break from, obviously. Janos is the same place that Dominguez would pass away in years later. Specifically, though, Mierda was at the Presidio of San Felipe Santiago de Janos, in the modern-day Mexican state of Chihuahua. And you can think of a presidio like a fort, like a, like a walled town. Miguel was 27, and he would, on that day, May 20th, 1741, he would marry a beautiful local girl with quite the name, Maria Estefania de los Dolores Dominguez de Mendoza. Her family had actually fled Pope's revolution years prior. At this time, Miguel was a soldier on the far outskirts of Christendom. And for what purpose? Why did he leave the Santander Mountains of Spain and his probably comfy life there? The place where many streams and castles bear his family name, Miguel? That is unknown. But by the 1800s, a lot of Spain had left for the Indies and the Americas in reality. His early life is a mystery, and he doesn't really show up in the record until this day in 1741, his wedding day, which again is in Chihuahua, which is strange because of how accomplished he becomes later in life. I mean, the fact that he just now shows up. He will, after the wedding, move around Chihuahua until he reaches El Paso, or what would at the time have been called El Paso del Norte, right on the Camino Real the gateway to New Mexico, where his future resided. He also had two sons with his wife by the time he'd made it to modern-day Texas. In El Paso, Miguera, in his own words, rode on, quote, five campaigns against the enemy Apaches and Sumas, their allies, end quote. He was a cartographer who mapped much territory on these campaigns, as we know since he is the mapmaker for our expedition as well. He also rode against the Gila Apache. On that campaign, he was called to be the engineer and militia captain. His maps truly became necessary and much needed during this time. He also invested in a lot of land. He registered a non-producing silver mine, sold some dry goods, got into debt, and then spent 12 days in jail for said debt. But more on that campaign against the Apacheria. During this time, the group of Indians, the same one that had probably burned down many a Sinagua Pueblo, including Montezuma's castle in Arizona, the same group that probably forced the Sinagua and those that had remained after the ancient ones fled to Paquime, but the early Apache may have been the peoples that forced the ancient ones to build walls after the great migration of the 1300s. By this time, though, the 1740s, the Apache had taken over the lands abandoned by the Anasazi and ancestral Puebloans, except for the Hopi, and now they lived in a crescent shape from Chihuahua to southern New Mexico, and they created great havoc for the Spanish and their forts or presidios. In 1747, the Viceroy of New Spain had decided he was going to wage all-out war against these Apacheria. To accomplish this, he ordered the leaders of three provinces 
and five presidios to send their best men, as many Indian allies as they could muster, and enough meat to feed them all. Spaniards, Hinizaros, and Indians from New Mexico, Nueva Vizcaya, Sonora, Chihuahua, and more, began arming themselves for a great battle. Many of these soldiers would be known as the Soldados de Cuerra, or the Leather Jacket Soldiers. The Soldados de Cuerra wore heavy, sleeveless, knee-length, protective, layered leather coats instead of a uniform, which sounds and the pictures describing it make him look awesome. It's like a leather duster, but sleeveless. They look like hardcore bikers, except for they're on horses. And as well as their leather jackets, they would have a an oval bullhide shield. They got to decorate themselves with whatever design they wanted to. And they armed themselves with, and I will quote Kessel here, a steel-tipped lance, a close-quarters short sword, a brace of horse pistols, and a muzzle-loading musket, or escopeta, which he was reluctant to fire in combat unless sure of the mark. The minute or two it took him to reload gave his Indian adversary time to get off a dozen arrows. End quote. Miguel was one of these soldados de cuerra. And these guys are definitely awesome. And so were their Indian allies, who normally outnumbered them two to one, and whom they relied on heavily, obviously. Most of these allies were Pimas, Opatas, Tiwas, or Piros. And all of them were most likely descendants or cousins of the long-gone Hohokam and ancestral Puebloans, and they all hated their newcomer neighbors, the Apaches. When the time came for the campaign, the New Mexican governor, despite the threat of a hefty fine, had to bail after Abiquiu was attacked by Utes. He sent his soldiers in pursuit, but to no avail. Despite lacking one prong in this massive attack, the other four armies, comprising some 700 troops and around 2,000 horses, began their march towards the enemy Apaches. Obviously, the Apaches could see this coming, like from forever far away, so they banded together to attack the now defenseless towns. Then, cold and snow and wind set in, just typical desert weather. And then the Hopis hindered their progress even further, so the Apaches escaped. The furthest Miera got was Zuni. The campaign was ultimately a failure, but this failure would influence Miera much later, which I will talk about at the end of this episode, when I cover his proposal, his presidio's proposal, he hands the king of Spain. But these campaigns did allow Miera to practice his map making, a skill that will come in very handy for the future dawn. Epidemics that easily killed children and Indians swept through El Paso in 1749. Floods destroyed a bunch of the town, too. Sadly, in that same year, Miera and his wife would bury their third child, a newborn son. Indians, meanwhile, attacked outlying ranches. More diseases spread through the area. Life at this time in this place was difficult. By 1756, the Mieradas were in Santa Fe, 
after it seems the new governor had paid off his debts for him, and on top of it had made him alcalde mayor, or district officer. So he went from being in jail for that debt I talked about to mayor of one of the many districts of New Mexico. Kessel writes, The upriver colony during the 1750s was composed of eight districts, from north to south and west to east, Taos, Villa de Santa Cruz de la Cañada, Los Cueres, Villa de Santa Fe, Pecos en Galisteo, Zuni, Laguna, and Villa de Albuquerque. In theory, New Mexicans lived not far than a day's travel from their district officer. Each alcalde mayor y capitán Aguera acted as petty governor and militia captain of his district. Although unsalaried, he collected fees and fines for his judicial services, raised and commanded local militiamen and Indian auxiliaries, supposedly aided the missionaries, kept the governor informed, and put grantees in possession of their lands. End quote. Mierda would serve as alcalde mayor from 1756 to 1760 in the district of Pecos and, Pecos and Galisteo, which was the most dangerous district in all of New Mexico at that time. During his time as town and militia leader, he went on three Comanche campaigns, always making maps of the terrain during them, of course. Also during this time, he wanted to cast or make some cannons so that the people could defend themselves against the feared Comanches, who were being given ample powder guns and bullets by the French. He would not succeed at making the cannons, although the blacksmith, who was the previous alcalde mayor whom he had taken over for, he would go on to finish these five cannons. He'd also make 30 lance points. Kessel says of the cannons, though, Although Senna's efforts, Senna is the man who finished the cannons, although Senna's efforts were a triumph of sorts in terms of morale, such cannons, in the quick strike and hot pursuit warfare against Comanches, were in fact hardly worth the powder to charge them. End quote. After the cannons, or failed cannons, Miguel was called in 57 to ride with the governor to every corner of New Mexico, as all new governors do. So he rode from El Paso to Taos, and east and west. And during this trip from June to December, he would make quite the impressive map. And he'd be paid well to do it. This map he completes in 1758, and it is quite accurate. But he did not sign it. It is also beautiful with great sketches of bison and Indians and churches. So I debated on whether to read the description Kessel gives it or not, and I decided not to, but I have just changed my mind. So here's Kessel's great description. i got to pause and grab the book. So this is Kessel writing about um, the map. Mieta's symbols mix the fanciful and the representational. Two towered structures with a cross in the center mark the colony's three villas, Santa Fe, Santa Cruz de la Cañada, and Albuquerque. Nothing unusual. Yet the pitched roof single tower church he drew to show mission locations looks more like his parish church in Spain than any of the uniformly flat-roofed religious structures of New Mexico. Abandoned missions lack the cross and their roofs are caved in. 
The Presidios of Fronteras, Hanos, and El Paso feature Spanish flags, curiously missing from Santa Fe. Settlements of Spaniards appear as pitched roof, two-story monopoly houses, evidently to convey their European origins. Uh, he goes on to say, Mierda took more care, it would seem, to represent the lifestyles of non-Pueblo Indians. Clusters of dome-shaped wiki-ups with a single door and no windows serve for rancherias of Apaches and other heathens. He uh, marks the Sumas, the Gila, the Ferreon, Southern Plain Apaches, Navajos, Costinas, Mokwai, which are Hopi, and roving tribes of Utes. Um, this is me talking. And then, I think there's another really good description. Sorry, hopefully I'm not losing y'all, but it's nice. And so this is actually a different map than the one I was just talking about, but here's uh, Kessel one more time. The artistic Mierda seemed ever more inclined to illustrate his maps. Seated at each upper corner of the frame around the dedication are two well-drawn winged cherubs. Flanking the oval in which Mierda identifies his place symbols stand two Indians in quite different attire. The Hopi on the left looks more like a Spaniard but holds a rabbit hunting stick. On the right, a Cosnina in fringed leather with bow and quiver of arrows sports a headdress of erect red feathers. Farther to the right on the other side of what could be a peach tree, uh, the artist places two seated young Hopi women. One of them in an off-the-shoulder dress and wearing the characteristic two-lobed hairdo of unwed maidens, grasps a withering snake, a writhing snake, sorry, while the other models the hairstyle and dress of a married woman. On the far right side of the map, amid scattered buffalo, two Comanches stride toward the Rio Grande, each cradling a shiny French musket in his left arm. The man in the lead wears a somewhat different red feather headdress and shows off an iron hatchet that dangles from his right waist. Both have circular shields on their backs. These are surely among the earliest Spanish portraits of Comanches, Hopis, and Nicosnina. There's actually, I'm sorry, one more. The map is elaborate. This is at a different um, map that he made at that, that time. He was making a lot of maps on all of these uh, excursions into Comancheria and Apacheria and all over New Mexico and beyond, which is what made him so useful to the Dominguez and Escalante expedition. But I think this map was drawn in 1760. And here's Kessel. The map is elaborate. A horseman appears in the foreground, his head slightly bowed, wearing fancy button-up leggings and bearing a distinctly decorated shield. If this is supposed to be Governor Marin de Valier, Mierda has placed him in the very thick of combat. The action is frantic. A row of mounted, leather-jacket presidial soldiers lances forward, rides at full gallop into a standing phalanx of Apaches with bows drawn. Mierda labels his busy vignette, Dress of the Faron Apaches and their manner of fighting against the Spaniards. Considerably more decorative than the artist's earlier efforts, this oil-painted souvenir is enhanced by fully-leafed green trees dotted along rivers and streams, symbolizing the bosques that mark the region's meandering watercourses. Mierda chose the title, Map of the Kingdom of New Mexico Dedicated to Señor Don Francisco Antonio Marín de Valle, by Don Bernardo de Mierda y Pacheco showing the provinces that surround it, enemy and peaceful. This time, Don Bernardo finally did take credit. End quote. So he did sign it. And then just, I'm going to finish right now. 
As for enemies, Mierda drew a single Comanche all in leather, wearing a necklace and discs on his shirt, likely silver trade brooches. He is bundled in a buffalo robe and stands with a staff in one hand and an iron throwing axe in the other. Lest anyone forget, the cartographer pinned with a fine quill a note on the plains beyond the mountains east of Santa Fe, next to the Rio de las Conchas o Colorado. And now he's quoting Don Bernardo Mierda y Pacheco. All these lands and rivers on the side of the mountains are dominated by the Comanches who invade this kingdom, robbing and killing. They are already skilled in handling the horse and the firearms they acquire from the French nation. The Apache nations to the south are also much engaged in warfare with the Comanches. End Mierda's quote. The Pueblo Indians, two men and two women accompanied by three crouching drummers, are identified as dance and dress of the Indians of New Mexico and are easily recognizable. In the, max, in the map's extreme northwest corner, Mierda allows himself a bit of fanciful geography. In a barely legible scribble across the Rio del Tizon, which, if you remember, is the Colorado River, but uh, in a barely legible scribble across the Rio del Tizon, he labels Gran Quivira and Tehuayo. An explanatory note reveals that Don Juan de Oñate, the first settler, el primer poblador, got that far, but could not cross over to the far side because of the river's great volume. I'll stop there. But that's kind of important. In that last map that he made, he puts Tehuayo up on the far left, top left corner, which is essentially where our crew is now, or about to pass through. So, he believed the Tewayo hype back in the 1760s. So, back to my notes on, on this episode. Hopefully that wasn't too long, but it's a great description of Don Mieri Pacheco's maps, if you'll never see them. Which this book, thankfully by John Kessel, has a bunch of, of his uh, maps. And they were really, really pretty, really well done for that time. Uh, but on that map he made in 1758, the Don actually comments on the legend of the white men who speak Castilian up in the Rockies. So, not only does he believe in Tehuayo and the lake, but uh, he also is convinced of the lost bearded Spaniards. So that kind of ties in to our expedition anyways. I mean, besides the fact that Mierda Pacheco was the main character. One of probably the coolest by the early 1760s, Mierda was spending a lot of time in the Palace of the Governors in Santa Fe in New Mexico. His star was definitely on the rise, as Kessel puts it. He also made a lot of maps during this time, most of which I just read. Also, he carved a massive altar screen for the church, um, for the governor and his good friend, who, who was his good friend. Uh, but this church was in Santa Fe for the Presidio. And it is truly a beautiful piece of art. It still exists today. And there are pictures in the Kessel book. This altar screen was 19 feet wide by 25 feet tall. And it had three tiers. Kessel writes of it, quote, Philippe R. Mirabel, who has studied Miera for years, points out how precisely the artist used geometry to lay out the uh, altarpiece, citing the artist's obvious training as a mathematician. But Don Bernardo did not innovate when it came to the saints. He closely followed printed engravings, faithfully copying the poses and clothing of the holy images, then incising them on stone. End quote. 
So a lot of hard work went into it, and it truly is a beautiful piece of massive stone art. Despite life looking good for the dawn, life in New Mexico, I mean, the edge of Spanish civilization was still rather tough. Here's yet another quote from Kessel. On Bernardo de Mierra y Pacheco's 47th birthday, August 4, 1760, the most ferocious and long-remembered Comanche attack of the century occurred in northern New Mexico. End quote. Almost 20 years later, Dominguez, uh, our Fray Francisco Atanasio Dominguez of the expedition, he would give the reason for this horrible attack when he wrote, quote, to avenge the fact that two months earlier, they, the Indians of Taos Pueblo, had danced under their, the Comanches, eyes with 24 scalps of their people. End quote. So after that, apparently 3,000 Comanches rode into the territory, right at the same time as the Puebloans were tending to their fields, essentially defenseless. Kessel writes what occurred. According to Miera, a warning preceded the Comanches, which wasn't surprising given the unprecedented mass of their force. Evidently, this hell-bent wave of heavily armed, painted, and screaming attackers swept around Taos Pueblo itself, which Dominguez described elsewhere as resembling those walled cities with bastions and towers that are described to us in the Bible. They raged down the open Taos Valley, ravaging farm after farm. The valley's terrified residents fled for refuge to the fortified great house of Pablo de Villalpando, who had left that morning on business. Miera captures what happened next. And now he's quoting Miera. The enemy attacked the said house with daring force, sneaked below the embrasuras of the parapet and towers, and thus safely under cover, proceeded to open breaches at various points and set fires in them. To stop this maneuver, the besieged showed themselves upon the parapet, and then the said enemies took advantage of the opportunity to wound them with bullets and arrows. They all perished. Villapando's wife, Tamaron, related, fought fiercely alongside her cousins. Seeing that the attackers were breaking down the outside door, she went to defend it with a lance, and they killed her fighting. Dominguez added that the raiders, quote, killed a number of women who had fought like men, and when they were dead, they insolently coupled them with the dead men, end quote. The bishop stated the Comanches then carried off 56 women and children. The cartographer made it 64, and the friar in 1776 allowed more than 50, a number of whom had since been ransomed. But the Comanches also paid a price, with either 49, more than 80, or more than a hundred killed. End all quotes. That is quite the battle. Those Comanches were truly ferocious. In response, the governor in Santa Fe mustered every available man and boy who could fight and sent them out with some Hickoria Apache brethren in pursuit. They wandered for 40 days, though, and through about 520 miles of the Great Plains and the Eastern Rockies to no avail. The dawn was almost certainly uh, likely among the warriors who responded and ran out there. After that governor left, the next one did not need Mieta's maps. But private citizens and the church still hired Mieta y Pacheco for other artistic works. 
mostly of a religious nature. That same new governor didn't last long, though, and during his brief tenure he would get some revenge on the Comanches. Not revenge of the sweet kind, though. He would come upon Comanches at Taos, who were just there to trade, and he would fire cannons and muskets down into their teepees when they refused to return all the prisoners from that previous raid. Meanwhile, the Utes stole a thousand horses and 300 women and children from the Comanche during this, you know, volleying of fire down into the, to their encampment. Those that weren't cut down, which was only 36 of them apparently, they burned the rest of their belongings, killed their horses, and ran into the plains. The governor called it a quote-unquote glorious victory. This governor of New Mexico's replacement was the capable Comanche fighter Tomas Velez Cachupin. Good name. This was actually his second term as governor, and the Comanches called him Captain That Amazes. He would sit down with the Comanches, offered them tobacco and chocolate, and he made peace. Of Ketchupin, Kessel writes, Why Velez Ketchupin wanted to return to raw and remote New Mexico is nowhere obvious. Perhaps no other post was available. Had he, like several earlier Spanish governors, fallen under the spell of New Mexico or its women? End quote. I like that. My brother married a New Mexican woman, and they just moved back to the state, the northwest corner of the state, after I believe she promised never to live there again. And another sibling of mine, my sister, and her family just moved west of Albuquerque. And I do believe my wife and I are moving to the east of Albuquerque within the next few months. There's just something about that land of enchantment. Or as my sister-in-law, who just moved back, calls it, the land of entrapment. In 1762, Cachupin appointed the capable and trustworthy Mierda to Alcalde Mayor of the Quieres jurisdiction. This was west of Santa Fe from the Rio Grande and the east to the Puerco River in the west. The Jemez Pueblo was pretty much in the very center of it on the west side of the Jemez Mountains. A year later, in 1763, the end of the French and Indian War came, or as the rest of the world called it, the Seven Years' War. This would have huge ramifications for America and the colonies situated there on the East Coast. It would really eventually cause the Revolutionary War, after England tried to recoup its losses and house its soldiers on the continent. France lost big in the New World in that war. They no longer had the land Louisiana west of the Mississippi. They'd given that to Spain. But they also lost to the English all of Canada, Acadia, Cape Breton, and now Louisiana east of the Mississippi. Which meant the big baddie of the Spanish in the New World was no longer their bourbon cousins to the north, but those English across the channel. Also in that year, 1763, Kessel writes of something interesting that happened in Abiquiu. 
A witch scare bubbled over in the town of Abiquiu, complete with demonic possessions, accused sorcerers all over the kingdom, shrines to the devil, and multiple exorcisms. Through it all, Governor Velez Cachupin kept his head and presided over the necessary proceedings. A dozen years later, Father Dominguez would lament that the governor had confined some of the women possessed by the devil in the Franciscan library and archive, where they tore up rare books for cigarette paper and burned mission registers. End quote. You know, I used to think witch scares were a curious quirk of history, but uh, I now see witches as real, and they're quite open about being real and witches. And they're not just confined to being women. The demons and witches of our ancestors, in my opinion, have returned. But anyways, when the new governor arrived, Governor Mindenweta, a name you should remember, because it's the one who would go on to sign off on our expedition, the Dominguez and Escalante expedition. Well, when Mindenweta arrived, he let Mierda go as Alcada Mayor. At this time, Mierda, uh, he was ranching anyways. He had a small herd that he combined with an old friend near modern-day Cuba, New Mexico. And that was a dangerous territory, as it was the buffer zone between the Navajo and the New Mexicans. Uh, This area is west of the Jemez, and it's a pretty place. It's a pretty place I have driven through a few times. In this land grant, Mierda and his friend were told not to drive away the Navajo, but instead... Quote, Try to attract them into the folds of our holy faith and vassalage to our sovereign, treating them without guile and with Christian charity, on pain of nullification of said grant. End quote. So play nice with your Navajo neighbors who might just build a hogan on your land occasionally. Try to convert them and you can keep your land. By 1768, Don Bernardo Mierda y Pacheco had further moved up the social ladder as his son married the Alcalde Mayor's daughter, and he rubbed shoulders with New Mexico's elites even more than he had previously already. In 1774, we are almost caught up to our expedition, but in 1774, the Don met Escalante. As has previously been mentioned, when the latter asked the former to create a new carved and painted altar screen for the church at Zuni. Kessel writes this of their interactions. Quote, While he worked, Don Bernardo had recounted to Fray Silvestre his first-hand experience as engineer and captain of the militia on the general campaign of 1747. End quote. Kessel then writes this of the pieces that Miera made for Zuni, the religious pieces for the church. It's a lengthy quote, but it's uh, it's interesting. Pieces of Mierda's Zuni altar screen, collected, read stolen, in the late 19th century, found their way into museums in the eastern United States. A pair of Mierda's handsomely carved wooden estepite columns, curated until recently as part of Arts of the Americas at the Brooklyn Museum, have been repatriated to the Pueblo. Of special note are matching wooden guardian arch archangels San Miguel and San Gabriel, who resided for generations at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. San Gabriel was in truth San Rafael, because an earlier sketch shows him holding a fish. E. Boyd writes, 
These are closely related to other works of Mierre Pacheco by their rugged physical characteristics, broad earthy faces, and attention to costume detail. Saint Gabriel, which Boyd guessed correctly was San Rafael, here resembles a robust village boy rather than a supernatural spirit, while Saint Michael, the patron saint of the military, suggests that a contemporary of Mierre Pacheco's actually posed for the shrewd, somewhat cocky face, perhaps a young alferez or lieutenant, in the captain's company of militia. Also repatriated to Zuni in 1995, San Miguel is now on display in the Pueblo's visitor center. His counterpart, San Rafael, was not so lucky. He burned in fire at the Smithsonian 30 years earlier in 1965. End quote. So Escalante and Mierre Pacheco had met, and they'd spent some time together while Escalante was hatching his plan of connecting the coast, the west coast, to the colony of New Mexico. He knew of Mierra's combat and leadership history. He knew of his veteran status and his intelligence. So why didn't Mierra lead the expedition? This, this expedition we've been talking so much about. Escalante would go on to write this in 1776. Quote, I merely said in my letter that he would be useful as one of those who were to go, not to command the expedition, but to make a map of the terrain explored. And I state that only for this do I consider him useful. End quote. Kessel then writes, quote, Although in translation the friar's statement sounds spiteful, he didn't mean it that way. He knew, after hours of listening to Mierra reminisce about the general campaign of 1747 and other explorations, what a valuable asset the aging cartographer would be. End quote. It still begs the question, of why Mierda didn't lead. This very capable man I just um, gave you the history of. And with that not-so-brief history of both a little bit of New Mexico and our awesome veteran Don Bernardo Mierda y Pacheco, with those out of the way, we are caught up to the present in the expedition. Which, if you will remember, is November of 1776. They have just crossed the cold and wide Colorado River. The weather was frigid and brutal, and they are headed towards Hopi. There's a lot of ground to cover. On the 9th of November, the Dominguez and Escalante expedition of 1776 came across a camp of Paiutes who, as soon as the Spanish had been noticed, fled the scene. Well, try as they might, the d men and their interpreter, Andres Munez, could not get them to come out of hiding. The expedition really needed some help. Just that very day before discovering this camp, they'd wandered around the canyons until steep cliffs forced them to backtrack some five miles. Escalante speculated that either these Paiutes were afraid they were friends with the Hopi, their mortal enemies, or they had never seen Spaniards before. But either way, he figured one of those reasons was why they avoided them. He would remark that these Indians were timid in the journal. He'd go a little further than that. On the 10th, they discovered some bighorn sheep and their tracks. And they also discovered yet some more Paiutes. But this time, Munez was able to convince them to give them directions, finally. Not all of them, mind you. 
Just Andres Muñez and Joaquin. Joaquin remembers the Laguna Ute from the shores of Lake Tehuayo. So off in secret, the Paiutes told these two the way out of these canyons and the way towards home. Apparently. Maybe. But they also told them, quote, A short distance from here we would find two trails, one toward the Costinas and another to El Pueblo de Oraibi in Mokwai. End quote. And oh, Oraibi is on the Hopi mesas. Mokwai for them was a term that meant the Hopi land. The Cosninos, if you'll also remember, are the Havasupai. So they pretty much got the best news ever, if the trail pans out. Which it absolutely did. They then followed this trail for two cold and very rough days. While walking the trail, Escalante would notice and then later write about how the Indians had improved the trail and had cut stairs into and made guides of sticks and stones along like a path. They would pass over and through cliffs, hewing at the stones as they went. They would walk along creeks and high on ledges. I mean, the going was tough. And again, they were very cold. They even feared at one point that Mierre Pacheco was going to freeze to death on them. Escalante writes, quote, Because of the persisting great cold, we held back for a spell while the rest of the companions went on ahead in order to build a fire and warm up Don Bernardo Mierre, who was ready to freeze on us and who we feared would not survive so much cold. End quote. At one point, they had to break ice at a spring just to drink it. They were also still starving, as the previous Indians they had run into, they'd had no food to spare. And then they became thirsty, as the spring water they had to break through to reach wasn't enough. It continued to be a trail of trial. On the 13th, though, they killed themselves in El Espino, or a porcupine, which Escalante wrote about, it, quote, we tasted flesh of the richest flavor, end quote. Well, so now, obviously, I want to try a porcupine, although I do think that there's, like, a lot of Native American legends about not eating porcupines, but I, that could just be hearsay. The porcupine wasn't enough, though, and he wrote it only whet their appetite, so they had to kill yet another horse. Escalante had wished it wasn't necessary, but having found no camp of Cosnina with which to provide sustenance, it had become just that, necessary. Starving is not preferable to having an extra mount. But then, the following day, the 14th, they did indeed stumble upon a Cosnina camp. They arrived at a camp with the irrigation ditches, peach trees, beans, melons, corn, and all manner of foodstuffs. They also found a house of stone and mud with jars and baskets in it, but no people. I said Cosnina camp because Escalante called the camp a Cosnina one. But again, the Cosnina are the Havasupai, which were 90 miles away at the very least. David Roberts in Escalante's dream suggests there's a small possibility it could be a Navajo settlement although it doesn't really match the description of one too well. 
Roberts then suggests it's more likely that it was just an outlier Hopi village. And that makes a whole lot more sense, really. From this small abandoned village, they continue south on a more direct course for the Hopi mesas. It seems there had been a latent desire for Dini to visit these Havasupai Kosnina because, the year before, when Escalante was at the Hopi mesas, he'd actually met with two visiting Kosninas. And they told Escalante that they loved the Spanish, and they'd love for him to visit them, which he told them he would, of course. Well, on this very cold day in the middle of November, the team abandoned that possibility due to, quote, the extreme severity with which winter was plaguing us, end quote. Briggs, in his uh, Without Noise of Arms, Walter Briggs, he writes of this decision, quote, God's elements dictated against fulfillment of God's will, end quote. If you've been keeping... Uh, if you've been listening to this series, you know that Walter Briggs' Without Noise of Arms is just a fantastically well-written and fun book over Dominguez and Escalante. All of this land that they're walking through at this time either parallels or is to the east of the highway that takes you from Page, Arizona, to Cameron, Arizona, and that highway being 89. That very beautiful road throughout this part of the American Southwest. Today, there ain't much to see on the stretch from Lee's ferry exit to Cameron, and the road is incredibly bumpy and bouncy like a roller coaster. Only sand lays beneath the asphalt, and time dictates the road moves. Up and down, at least. Almost all of the land is Navajo Res land of the Caibito and Moenkopi Plateaus, and almost all of it is closed to any sort of camping or hiking by whites and non-Navajos. Although in times past, exploring it was possible and was sought out by those truly adventurous. Again, you will have to listen to the Everett Ruiz episode coming up next. It's amazing though, and I have to ask, where on earth have the Navajo been in this story? It's very curious they haven't run into any thus far, even though Miera y Pacheco's later map would call this land Provincia de Navajo. I copied the map for the cover of the intro episode, and on that map I even copied his De Navajo. So where were they? Not long after, 150 years later, Everett Ruiz would wander through here, constantly constantly running into Navajo and Navajo Hogans. I talked about that mystery in an episode or two ago, and I still am not sure. After abandoning their quest to baptize the people of the blue-green waters, the Havasupai, the DNA expedition slowly began finding signs of Hopi, which meant they were close to the end. Almost. They found the Moenkopi Wash, Moenkopi being a Hopi word for running water, and that is near today's Tuba City. They found Hopi cattle, which some unnamed members of the expedition begged the Padres to be able to kill and eat. Maybe they were tired of eating horses? Maybe they didn't want to run out of horses? Maybe they just really missed beef 
Regardless, the leaders denied their request for some beef. It was not what's for dinner. But horse, again, was for dinner. Their sixth. By the 16th, though, they had made it to Oribe, that Pueblo I have mentioned many times. They were now squarely in Hopi territory, and that meant there would be no more getting lost. Although the 133 miles between Hopi and Zuni was still fraught with Navajo raiders, and both Escalante and the once Zuni mayor, Cisneros, knew that fact very well. Although, again, they haven't run into any Navajo yet. Remember the story that the Hopi told Escalante on his visit in 1775 about the Navajo that were planning to kill him? Remember also that the Hopi weren't overly fond of the Spanish either. And both Escalante and Cisneros learned that lesson too, back in 1775. On that mission to Hopi I mentioned in the beginning of this series, Escalante had actually been accompanied by three Zuni men a man from Isleta, and Cisneros himself. And while on that utter failure of a mission, Escalante got into an argument with some dudes when no one showed up to listen to him preach at Oribe. Eventually, at the conclusion of the argument, one of the two quote-unquote captains that had come to listen to him said, quote, He did not want the Spaniards ever to live in his land. And for me, not to worry myself in going about giving advice to his people, for none would give ear to me. End quote. Ouch. After the very heated argument where he was told to leave and never come back, Escalante headed to his little house that the Hopi had let him stay in, feeling, quote-unquote, very sad. He'd then learned that while he was in the little house, word was spreading not just in Oraibi, but throughout all the Hopi mesas, that, quote, no one was to listen to my counsel because my aim was to subject them to the Spaniards, end quote. I mean, it kind of is. They're not wrong. It had only been 75 years or so since the Papwakt and the sorcery had been wiped out at Awatovi. The Hopi did not want to return to that time of witchcraft. Although at this time in 1775, there was a severe and devastating drought building in the southwest that would destroy a lot of Hopi lives and change the people forever. Certainly that had nothing to do with the religious visit, right? That unpleasant argument between Escalante and the captain had taken place at Oribe, the very same mesa they'd made it to the base of over a year later in 1776 on that cold November 16th day. Do you think the two cacique captains on the mesa he'd met with are going to remember him? I'm sure he certainly hoped not. And on the subject of remembering, did the Spanish not remember what happened at the Hopi mesas during the revolt and after the reconquest? Both things I talked about in the past few episodes... I mean, it's likely the, the Spanish actually did forget. But what they hadn't forgotten was that to the religious, the Hopi were the most apostate people in all of the vast Spanish kingdom. Also, on the subject of forgetting, it's possible that Escalante was wishing he could forget that last visit of his to the area, 
But even more so, he probably wishes he could forget the letter he wrote to the governor of New Mexico himself in October, the year before, 1775, a couple months after this disastrous visit. In that letter, which David Roberts brought to my attention in his book, and which letter shocked the author, he says of the letter, quote, I myself was shocked when I first read the text, end quote. First of all, at the tail end of that visit, where Escalante was run out of the Hopi town, and that last village he came to, Walpai, at that village he accidentally stumbled upon a quote-unquote obscene and horrifying spectacle of a kachina dance in the square. More specifically, it was probably the snake dance, or a portion of the snake dance, where clowns make fun and humble various tribal members for various reasons. I've talked about the importance of staying humble among the Hopis before. Well, what Escalante saw saddened him so much so that he leapt up out the entire Hopi land the very next day. Which makes his ignoring the Navajo threat make a lot more sense. He wanted to get out of there at any cost lest the devil take his soul. This is what he wrote of the Hopi Kachina dance that he saw, though. I heard a great noise and disturbance in the street. I hastened out to learn the cause and saw some of the masked men they call intrameseros, and they are equivalent to the ancient Mexican huehuenches. The frightful and gloomy painting of their masks and the height of indecency in which they ran in view of many people of both sexes were very clear signs of the foul spirit who has their hearts in his power. The only part of their bodies that was covered was the face, and at the end of the member, it is not modest to name, they wore a small and delicate feather subtly attached. End quote. I mean, he really kind of described that, that feather at the end of the member there, but... Apparently, Escalante witnessed some men in large painted masks dancing in front of everybody in the town, wearing only said large mask and a little feather. That image would sit and stew in him for months. It frustrated and angered him so much that he eventually wrote a letter to the governor of New Mexico, the same Minden Meta, and in this letter he outlined what, well, what I would not be wrong in calling... Escalante's final solution to the Hopi or Mokwai problem. Here's Escalante's fix. The proper means that can and ought to be taken is as follows. With forces of the projected expedition, and this expedition was a military assault on the Gila Apaches way far to the southwest of the Hopi. But with forces of the projected expedition, they be subdued by arms to the domain of their legitimate sovereign that they be brought down from the Pueblos to a plain and proper site, and whatever measures considered imperative be taken to require of them the necessary compliance. He goes on to say, By our seizing and defending the water holes of which they daily avail themselves, because of thirst and need of their flocks, they will be forced to surrender without great fatigue to ourselves. End quote. In essence, Escalante was suggesting they deprive the Hopi and their flocks of water, which will force them to leave their pueblos and their mesa tops, at which point the Spanish would no doubt destroy them, or at least 
because he is a priest, he really can't condone that kind of violence. Maybe just force them to live on reservations in plains, flat plains, and grow crops as God intended. I mean, that, that's a pretty harsh response to seeing some errant ween dancing. Especially since, as a priest of the Catholic Church, like I just said, he is not allowed to hurt or kill or draw blood. Even in the capacity of being a surgeon. He could not even hand down sentences himself of death, say, if he was in the Inquisition. He can only suggest the punishment. But as discussed earlier, it was about more than just naked men and masks. It was about that, quote, foul spirit who has their hearts in his power, end quote. It was about the devil. Escalante wanted nothing to do with the devil, which he felt had taken hold of the Hopi mesas. Which is kind of ironic, because the Hopis felt that the Spanish introduced the devil to the Hopi mesas. Both kind of had the same fix for that problem, too. Except the Hopi actually carried it out at Awatobi. Escalante didn't see a cultural kachina dance when he saw what he saw. He literally saw the devil right there out in the open dancing, prancing, flopping around. I mean, I can sympathize with that a little bit. I'd probably think the same thing if I were a 1770s young Spanish Franciscan friar who longed for martyrdom while saving souls. And he thought, I'm sure, if we can remake the Hopi like we remade the Rio Grande Puebloans, maybe the devil will also leave them. But David Roberts was right to be shocked when he read that letter. You don't get that sort of vitriolic anger from the journal, that's for sure. Nor do you sense it when he is forced to beg for help at their mesas just over a year after he wrote that letter, that final solution to the Mokwai problem letter. So, at the base of Oraibi, Escalante, Cisneros, and Andres Munez told the rest of the team to stay put before they apprehensively ascended the path to the old Hopi town. Almost immediately upon their arrival, they were surrounded by a, quote, large number of Indians, big and small, end quote. And after asking for the war captain multiple times, but getting nowhere on account of Andres Munoz speaking Ute, not Hopi, eventually Cisneros piped up in Navajo, which thankfully worked. Sort of. A big Hopi man would come find them, and he ordered them to turn around and did not permit them to enter further, which was a rehash of the previous year for Escalante. But Cisneros, thinking quickly, asked him, Wait! Aren't we all friends here? And surprisingly, that worked. The Spaniards were then shown to their little house, like Escalante and Cisneros had the year prior. And later that night, the quote-unquote ritual headman, with two very old consiglieres, let Escalante, Munez, and Cisneros know that, quote, they were our friends, offered to sell us the provisions we might need, we let them know that we much appreciated it. End quote. No doubt, this was a godsend. And Escalante, who was probably leery of the coming interaction, 
had to have felt relieved. And probably thankful that his final solution plan had not been enacted. Briggs also adds, quote, At least the visitors had not been forced to remain on the street and deny sustenance, as had been Garces' fate here. End quote. There's Garces again. So this was a godsend indeed. Garces had been denied, and he had been kicked out. And I'll bring that up again in a little bit. It's kind of important. But maybe the hope he had heard from passing neighbors, Indian neighbors, about these men wandering, and knew of their hardships, and knew of their coming arrival, and they probably knew that they were not a threat, despite Escalante's request. The following day, November 17th, the three were thankfully brought sustenance in the form of, quote, some baskets or trays of flour, beef tallow, maize, paper bread, and other kinds of food supplies, end quote. Ted J. Warner, who wrote the footnotes to the Dominguez and Escalante journal, he wrote that paper bread is, quote, a paper-thin bread made from fine corn flour. It tastes like cornflakes and is really the forerunner of cornflakes. It is delicious, end quote. I will say that cornflakes are not delicious, lest you pour a spoonful of sugar on them and then douse them in red milk or whole milk. The expedition was then brought all of this food, despite that devastating drought that I had mentioned before and was currently affecting the Hopi. And this drought would be affecting them even more so shortly. I mean, it would devastate their entire way of life, almost destroy entirely the Hopi. The entire expedition is then moved to Second Mesa and the town of Shangopavi, where they somehow talked to the Hopi and got their further understanding that they were still subjects of Spain. I don't know where this delusion of Escalantes was coming from in the journal. He was just begging for food, essentially. After being kicked out the year before, and after wanting to annihilate the Hopi, they were essentially using sign language and Navajo for all of this, too. And he thought that the, the Hopi were like, yeah, yeah, sure, we're still subjects of Spain. <laughs> you know, that's ridiculous. On the 18th, rested and full, the leaders of the DNA expedition did what they do best, and they somehow preached to the Hopi about God and the devil uh, and all of that, but this time... Instead of their listeners beaming with joy and love and understanding, the two were interrupted and reminded that, uh, we don't speak Spanish, and y'all don't speak Hopi, so we have no idea what you're talking about. And even if we did, we don't care. Saddened, they left it at that, but then, to try and play nice, they offered a blanket to the wife of the man who had let them stay at Shangopavi. But instead, the brother of the wife Quote, snatched it away from her and threw it at us with a mean look on his face. End quote. The message will be pretty loud and clear to me. I have no idea why they stayed so long here in the first place. Especially after his last interaction, I hope he. If I were Escalante, I would have begged that we leave immediately after they purchased the food they've been given. But maybe they were rather cold and they needed to recover. This man, though, that threw the blanket, he proceeded to explain that he remembers Escalante, 
He was there when that whole debacle had gone down the year prior. He remembers specifically when the Kosninas told the Padre about how they wanted him to come and preach to them. That information, imparted to Escalante the previous year, angered the Hopi man because he believes now that the D&E crew had just come from the Habasupai, of whom at that time they were having a bit of a row with. So the writing is vague, and Escalante says the deduction is obvious, although it is not obvious to us today. But he says the reason why this man is mad should be clear to the reader, so he just leaves it at that in the journal. So we are left to deduce that this man thinks the DNE crew are at Hopi on behalf of the Hopi or the Peaceful One's current enemy, the Havasupai or Kosninas. Yeah, hopefully you're still with me. Anyways, they left for the First Mesa shortly after that. When they arrived to the First Mesa on the night of the 18th, they were received joyfully and warmly. They were then given lodging in the quote-unquote ritual headman's house at the Pueblo of Hano. Do y'all remember me talking about Hano? It's the place with the refugees from the Pueblos who had been there since the Reconquista. Even today, they act as Hopi Mesa police. David Roberts sums up what happens here next uh, pretty well, so I will just read what he wrote. Later that night, through the counsel of a backslider Indian, originally from Galisteo, Pueblo, south of Santa Fe, the Padres got their first real inkling of what was going on at Hopi to explain the curiously mixed reception the Spaniards had received. The quote-unquote very old Galisteo man told the friars that Hopi was currently engaged in a cruel war with the Navajo Apaches, and that those had killed and captured many of their people. Thus, whatever warmth the team felt at Walpi sprang from a beleaguered notion that saw in the ragtag band of Spaniards a party, quote, through whom they might beg the Lord Governor for some aid or defense against their foes, end quote. The Galiseo elder, who evidently spoke Spanish, even volunteered to travel with the team to Santa Fe to plead for a Spanish alliance against the Navajos, end quote. That actually matches up with history pretty well. So, to coincide with the five-year awful drought, the Apaches were also raiding and killing the Hopi in severe numbers in, at that moment in time, much like the Apache ancestors had done to the Hopi ancestors at places like Montezuma Castle, perhaps. After hearing this news, though, D&E figured they could try and help, so they told the ritual headmen to gather a similar ritual headmen from each and every of the six Hopi Pueblos, and then once gathered to meet them the following day to, quote, talk over and to discuss it all, and to decide on what was best, end quote. The following day, the 19th of November, if you're keeping track, the meeting happened in a kiva in the Hopi village of Tano near Walpai. And in that meeting, these six representatives from these six villages all begged the friars to, quote, do everything possible in their behalf, end quote. And that is all the Franciscans needed in that moment for them to swoop in and start preaching. They immediately seized upon the possibility of converting them and finally getting them to subjugate themselves once again, if they were ever really subjugated, but once again to Spanish authority and more importantly, to God's authority. They literally could not help themselves, it seems, these padres. 
They said that while they sympathized with the Hopi's plight, they simply couldn't help them until they submitted to God. Since He alone, since God alone is truly the one that can save them. They laid heavy on eternal punishments in hell and how the Hopi were offending God, but it all can go away if they just submit humbly. Now I'm going to quote a long passage from Roberts because he does a good job summarizing the Hopi response, which is is pretty clever, but you know also obvious. The Padres were utterly unprepared for the Hopi response. Between the lines in this November 19 entry in Escalante's journal, the last substantive passage in the five-month record of the Great Journey. The courage of the Hopi Pueblos, even at their lowest ebb, shines through. Submit to the true religion, Dini promised, and the Hopi would enjoy continual and sure recourse to Spanish arms against all infidels who should war against them. From the Padre's point of view, the bargain was win-win. In one stroke, the Hopi could ensure their eternal salvation and gain an ally equipped with swords and firearms to crush the savage Navajos. Three times we made our plea, wrote Escalante, choking on his incredulity, exhorting them to submit themselves to the church's bosom by impugning and demonstrating as vain and false the reasons they gave for their not converting to the faith. The Hopi parried every argument the friars brought forth. They had seen padres before who tried to manipulate them into bending to Spanish rule, and they never had wanted it then or now. End all quotes. The Hopi simply weren't having it. They'd rather die against the Apache than the Navajo than submit once again to Spanish rule. The Hopis and the Tanos also mentioned how there were way more Indians in the Southwest than there were Spaniards anyway, so why join the side of the few? They mentioned how far away they were from Santa Fe, and how the promised weapons probably would never make it anyways. I mean, in the past three weeks I have driven twice through Hopi land, from Arizona to New Mexico, and then from New Mexico to Arizona. It is an incredibly vast, hot, or cold, and always windy distance through not much water and a whole lot of badlands. In reality, the Spanish could barely keep the Puebloans around Santa Fe safe. How are they going to keep these outposts at Moquai safe, truly? Remember Mindanueta's rebukes at enlarging the province in the first place? There weren't enough friars to preach to the people that were already established. How can they expand it further? Uh, And plus, the Hopis could barely feed themselves in this moment. How would they give tribute to the Spanish? Now, of course, the tribute was lessened, but they still had to grow. Eventually, the six representatives of the six villages unanimously, after much discussion... Quote, recalled the traditions of their forebears and urged their observance, concluding that it was better for them to undergo the present calamities and hardships than to go against them. And they replied that they solely desired our friendship, but by no means to become Christians, because the ancient ones had told them and counseled them never to subject themselves to the Spaniards. End quote. The ancient ones spoke, and the Hopi listened. You know, if I put myself in their shoes, I don't blame them at all. Remember Awatovi. Crestfallen, as Escalante puts it, 
They headed back through the now heavily falling snow to their lodgings, where they decided that they were leaving for Zuni the very next day. They had no hope of converting or helping these Hopi. Not to mention, it really had been snowing so much. They were afraid the passes and the trails would be closed if they didn't leave soon. And I can't help but think, converting the Hopi wasn't even on their radar. They were supposed to make it to California. Maybe find Garces, maybe find Tehuayo, maybe find the lost colony of the Spaniards. But they weren't supposed to convert the Hopi. Escalante must have known they had no chance. But I guess when an opportunity is presented, you have to try and take it. Briggs has some history I did not know about the weather and this area, though. The Hopi Mesas and I guess central, eastern, northern Arizona. The Painted Desert, essentially. Sometimes it still snows constantly hereabout. In the winter of 1968-1969, for one, snow fell so long and heavily that the Air Force deployed helicopters to rescue isolated Navajos and cargo planes to drop fodder to their snowbound livestock. End quote. As David Roberts puts it, the last few journal entries over the next five days are curt and spiritless. The expedition, at this point, was tired, hungry, and now so cold while walking through quote-unquote tiresome blizzards that they yet again feared for their lives and freezing to death, especially the old wise Don Mierre Pacheco. They were ready to be home and to forget about the many failures they'd encountered, especially the failure at Moquai or the Hopi Mesas. But still, they'd have to travel through a whole bunch of snow and with weary animals. Eventually, the team would break up and Dominguez, Escalante, and three others, all unnamed in the journal, they pushed ahead. On the 24th of November, those five, quote, arrived extremely exhausted when it was already dark at the Pueblo and Mission of Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe de Zuni, end quote. So they'd made it to Zuni. I mean, they were within the known territory of Nuevo Mexico now. They were essentially home. Or at least almost. In footnote number 460 of the journal, by Ted J. Warner, the footnote, after this just quoted sentence, Ted J. Warner writes, quote, This was Fray Silvestre Velez de Escalante's assigned mission. He was stationed here in June 1776 when he was ordered by Father Dominguez to report to him in Santa Fe to discuss prospects for an overland trip to Monterey, California. Thus, arriving here was like reaching home after a long, arduous four-month journey. End quote. But it wasn't home for the rest of the team, which, curiously, were never mentioned again. Although, in letters to Santa Fe, the other eight do make it to Zuni including the young Joaquin de Laguna. And for him, the only buildings, like man-made buildings that he had ever probably seen, outside of maybe some Anasazi ruins, were these at Zuni. Dominguez and Escalante would linger in Zuni for 17 more days until December 13th. No explanation was given for why. From Zuni, they would travel through some of my favorite places in New Mexico 
including El Moro, the inscription rock that I've mentioned before with the graffiti from Oñate. They would have passed mountains, badlands, malpais. Briggs and his beautiful writing covers this, so I will give a long quote from him. About halfway along, they dropped south of the 8,400-foot Zuni Mountains and recrossed, after 133 days, the Continental Divide at about 8,000 feet. Probably on their third day, they struck El Malpais, detritus of three distinct basaltic tidal waves, the latest less than a millennium ago. The Badlands is an understatement. They're 120,000 acres more tortured than any terrain our astronauts met on the moon. Winding about six miles across El Malpais, our travelers were fortunate to have a prehistoric trail, both to find their way and to save their animals' hooves. The trail is nicely engineered of small chunks of lava, with yawning fissures spanned by bridges of larger ones. To be seen hereabout, though Escalante mentions El Malpais not at all, are cave-like lava tubes, some over 50 feet in diameter and one almost 11 miles long. Here also are inverted cinder cones, one of them half a mile across, a thousand feet deep and of almost perfect proportions, Ice caves with delicate ceilings of crystal, formed and maintained by nature's critically adjusted temperatures, and crystal clear stalagmites rising from rink-like floors, splatter cones, formations ten feet high or so, and sinkhole ponds of lava, from several feet to over an acre across, with a variety of distinct ecological communities representing various stages of biological parade, some cozying an algae that radiates a translucent glow. Others nourishing bulrushes, cattails, even fish. Bizarre shapes, created during lava's hardening, confronted our journeyers everywhere, dwarves and dragons and whatever else they may have conjured up, and everywhere junipers stunted and twisted, contorted into writhing crones and clowns. If they had been aware of it, semicircular lava walls and fire rings at the mouths of those horizontal tunnels, these betokened campsites of Indians on the move, on their fourth day, our men climbed the 357-foot height to Akuma, popularly known today as the Sky City, by a trail that, as Dominguez recorded in his visitation report, makes a number of boxed-in turns, so difficult that in some places they have made wide steps so that the pack animals may ascend with comparative ease. These days we may drive to the top. Immediately, wrote Escalante, there fell a heavy snow which prevented us from continuing as soon as we desired. This would be his last diary observation, other than of distances, directions, and stopping places, until the expedition's arrival in Santa Fe. End quote. I just really like that description of El Malpais, which is an amazing place that I have been to. I spent two days there and a night, and it was truly incredible, walking around the lava tubes like it was Hawaii, the La Ventana Arch, it's just a really cool place. I definitely suggest everyone go check it out. They wouldn't make it back to Santa Fe until the following year, 1777, meaning they spent Christmas on the trail. They'd arrive on January 2nd to complete their epic loop. Once they'd returned, they handed over to Governor Mendenueta the painted deerskin from the Tipanagotsis, or Laguna Utes, those mythical but ultimately humble people on the banks of Tehuayo. 
They also handed over Joaquin, the Laguna boy, who'd stayed with them through thick and thin. And lastly, because, quote, everything stated in this diary is true and faithful to what happened and was observed in our journey, end quote, they handed over the journal, but not before signing it. Fray Francisco Atanasio Dominguez, Fray Silvestre Velez de Escalante. Today, both the deerskin art and the boy Joaquin's fate are unknown. Although many aspects of this story were unknown until later discovered, sometimes recently. Take, for instance, the report that Dominguez was to write about all of the missions in the region. He actually finished that report once he'd returned from this incredible journey, and he handed it over as well to his superiors. Well, one unknown superior on that report would write, quote, Report that is intended in part to be a description of New Mexico, but its phraseology is obscure, it lacks proportion, and offers little to the discriminating taste. End quote. It would be filed away with the note attached and lost, completely forgotten about until 1928, when it was uncovered, studied, and became, as Roberts puts it, quote, one of the two or three most valuable accounts of life in 18th century New Mexico. End quote. So, information and stories and writings may yet emerge. Like the location of the carving that they made, which was uncovered during the cleaning of the graffiti I talked about. Dominguez would be elevated to custodian of New Mexico's Franciscans, and he would be sent to El Paso de Norte. He appointed Escalante as his vice-custodian. But Escalante remained at San Ildefonso. In El Paso, things didn't go as smoothly as Dominguez had liked, and he wrote to Mexico City, quote, Jupiter rains calamities upon me, but with the favor of heaven I keep insisting that there is a remedy for everything, and that it can be applied without making a din. End quote. It seems though he was indeed making a din. His standards were apparently too high, and then charges, unknown nowadays, were filed against him. A fellow priest became fed up and he, quote, took the liberty of drawing his knife from his pouch and speaking his mind, end quote. Malicious rumors, Catholic intrigue. He'd write that he was going blind in his left eye and that he was losing the, quote, serenity and peace of mind which I so greatly need, end quote. Dominguez would disappear from the record for 17 years. And then when he reappears, he's asking for help in his little forgotten post of Hanos in the northern part of the state of Chihuahua. He'd die there in 1805. After the trip, Escalante asked Mindenweta if he could go through the archives and discover if there was any hidden information about the territory, New Mexican territory. Mindenweta said, sure, you can go through the archives, but they probably, quote, contain nothing but old fragments, end quote. In Kiva Cross and Crown, John Kessel writes of the bookworm that is Escalante, quote, Undaunted, Fray Silvestre Velez de Escalante, not yet thirty but already in failing health, spent hours poring over, copying, and abstracting what documents he could, end quote. It's in these documents that he discovered that Otermin had plenty of warnings before the revolt, which I talked about in that episode, if you'll remember. But he had plenty of warnings before the revolt. 
It was also in those documents where he uncovered a lot more information about the various Pueblos' involvement in the revolt and the Reconquista. Especially Pecos. So it's a good thing for us and for historians like Kessel that Escalante was such a seeker of information and a bookworm because Kessel used his writings extensively and I used Kessel's for the Pueblo Revolt episode. After the expedition... Escalante wrote a letter to his superior, that same Fray Morphi, who okayed the expedition in the first place. Well, in 1778, Escalante wrote him a letter that I think is important for us to read, because he sort of puts to bed the theory for the Spanish, at least, that a city of gold or a city of riches, that mythical Tehuayo, he pretty much shoots down the fact that it actually exists at all. I mean, he was there. He saw nothing. And the Indians said there was nothing beyond it. Escalante had become the doubting apostle, Thomas. After Escalante, a few other Spaniards would claim the place was actually even further north. No, 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 it's further north. But those rumors would never take off like the earlier ones. I mean, they've been rumored about since Coronado but really even before that. In writing about Tehuayo and the Lake of Copala to Morfa, he mentions what some historians believe is Mesa Verde and a few other Anasazi ancestral Puebloan ruins near where the places he traveled through. Although he barely mentions them in the expedition's journal, I will say that. Apparently he was perceiving them after all. Well, Escalante would write of Tehuayo, quote, it is nothing but the land by which the Tewas, Tiwas, and the other Indians transmigrated to this kingdom, which is clearly shown by the ruins of the Pueblos which I have seen in it, whose form was the same that they afterwards gave to theirs in New Mexico. And the fragments of clay and pottery which I also saw in the said country are much like that which the said Tewas make today, to which is added the prevailing tradition with them, which proves the same and that I have gone on foot more than 300 leagues in the said direction up to 41 degrees and 19 minutes latitude, and have found no information whatever among the Indians who today are occupying that country of others who live in Pueblos. End quote. Essentially, the tables came from the area to the northeast, clearly, which I talked about at length in my Kachina episode, when I quoted uh, winds, Ortman's winds from the north. So... They came from Mesa Verde, and any talk of Pueblos even further northwest, at least occupied Pueblos, is simply not true. Trust me, he wrote. I've been there. There was no infinite riches or a kingdom of many different Indians who had Pueblos and ridings, and there was no city that took eight days to walk around, no priest buried in a silver box. Just Indians on a lakeshore, that other Indians called the fish eaters. The fabled city or place of emergence that is Tehuayo, which sits on a giant lake that is the Lake of Copala, it simply was just that. A fable, a tale. At least until the Mormons would build their kingdom of Deseret there many, many years later. As part of his job that Dominguez elevated him to, Escalante was to reign in abuse from the Spanish religious. No more trading in, quote, boys, girls, pelts, whatever, end quote. Yikes. 
No more forcing the Indians to work for the church or for the religious themselves, which I thought we had already talked about that ending on the 1600s. No more punishing the Indians when they refuse to work for you, and no more having women, no matter how pretty they are, come into the church alone, and absolutely no more visiting said women at their house. I think I've seen this episode before. In 1780, as I mentioned in the opening of the series, Escalante dies in Chihuahua, like his friend Dominguez. Except unlike his friend Dominguez, he was only 30. He was in Chihuahua because he was heading towards Mexico City to look for a cure for that urinary ailment. That same urinary ailment that had probably saved the team's life by delaying them those weeks. But which ailment he never once mentioned in the journal. Despite mentioning Dominguez's rectal trauma, his old boss, Father Morphy, Morphy, I'm not sure how to say it, despite his youth, among the most meritorious of the custody because of his talent, his erudition, his hard labors, and above all because of his virtues, which led him to sacrifice his hopes, health, and life for the conversion of those souls. End quote. The journal Escalante wrote so well would go from Mindenweta to possibly Don Bernardo Mierra y Pacheco, along with his finished map, and he would take them to Chihuahua before they would be further carried to Mexico City, where Viceroy Bucarelli would have received the documents. Bucarelli would have then sent a copy of each to the king and his court in Madrid. Eventually a copy would reach my hands and then your ears. Now for the veteran, the esteemed Don Bernardo Mierra y Pacheco. Wrapping up his story requires some zooming back out. But first, before getting back into Kessel's A Renaissance Spaniard in 18th Century New Mexico, I'd like to bring up a different article by the author, same author, that reveals the fact that Mierda named Chaco Canyon. On one of his maps, the place is named Chaca, but it got turned into Chaco which, if you've been listening, I had a bunch of episodes over the people in that canyon and their influence on the wider world of the Four Corners. And I just returned from there over the weekend. My wife and I drove 11 hours to meet a brand new friend named Sid from Australia, who enjoyed the podcast while during his research for coming over here. So I showed him around Chaco Canyon, Aztec ruins, and then my wife and I visited Salmon ruins before making the quick 11-hour drive back through the Colorado Plateau in the Mojave Desert. It was one heck of a whirlwind weekend. But um, it makes me very happy to know that people are enjoying the podcast. So, Don Bernardo Miedra y Pacheco named Chaco Canyon. Another oft-mentioned place by me, including in this very series when they walk by it, but Miedra also named Chimney Rock which was that sacred landscape spot for the Chacoans in southern Utah. In that article, Kessel also reveals, quote, We do not have an original of the first map he drew in May 1777. Only copies. The original we cite was his revision in 1778. End quote. So the map he would have sent on to Mexico City with the original journal has been lost to time. Something for a future book, Wormish Escalante, to find in a museum or library, perhaps. 
That map, though, at least the copy, is indeed a masterpiece. On it, he places a little circle with crosses where every campsite they stayed at was. Or at least, his estimation of it, and he gets... He gets it pretty right. I mean, he does get some things wrong, and he assumes Utah Lake and the Great Salt Lake are combined. But technically, they never went up there to see it for themselves, so you got to give him a little bit of a pass. And yes, he believes that not only one, but two magical rivers flow from that area, the Great Basin, and head straight west towards the ocean. And yes, those Phantom rivers will influence later explorers to search for the non-existent waterways. But the map is a gorgeous cartographic dream. Now, I have no idea how he kept it all straight in his mind while they were out there traveling. It's truly astonishing. I mean, I love maps. I have so many maps on this trip I just took this last week and I bought three more. I probably have now like a hundred maps. Like... It's kind of getting out of control. In my office where I work and study and record these episodes, I have maps of the four corners. I got maps of the Colorado Plateau, a map of the U.S., and a map of California, all hanging on my wall. There's no more room on my wall to put any other maps. I mean, I do love maps. And because I look at so many, I'm beginning to be able to think in terms of where I am on the map when I visit or explore an area, so maybe that's just a talent you have when you can't pull out your phone and get to your exact spot on the globe wherever you want. That's probably a talent that is disappearing, but one that you can cultivate. Still, through all the twists and turns, canyons, cliffs, backtracking, mountains, storms, incorrect reading on the astrolabe, I don't know how he did it. It is amazing. Roberts says of this amazing map, quote, As a map of the American Southwest, Mierrey Pacheco's was not superseded until well into the 19th century. End quote. Mierrey's map was used and examined by the German geographer and explorer, and all-around smart guy, Alexander von Humboldt. And he used that map as he traveled the American West in 1803. Humboldt would then share his studies and his own maps with the man, one of my favorites, Thomas Jefferson. These maps and studies, which all stemmed from Yerra, would influence, greatly influence, the Lewis and Clark expedition. Which brings this series full circle, since I opened it with the quote about how the DNA expedition explored more land than that American expedition would. And the DNA crew did it without noise of arms. Not as awesome as the map, but what would have no doubt been a very important topic at the time of this story, in October of 1777, a year after the expedition, Mierrey Pacheco would present a lengthy proposal to the king of Spain in a letter. He wrote the king to say that he had a plan to conquer the new lands they just explored, where the Spanish could build their three presidios, or fortified walled cities, filled with soldiers, but also he could, they could preach and teach and convert the natives. He suggested they put one fortification where the Gila and the Colorado converge near Yuma. That way they could finally compel the Apaches to give up the fight. You see, earlier, MMP had actually fought in a campaign at that location against the very same Apaches. That fortification 
would kind of be built later, but on a much smaller scale. The second Presidio fortification, he said, should be built at the confluence of the Navajo and Las Animas River, which is impossible because the two rivers never meet in northern New Mexico, southern Colorado. What he probably meant was the Navajo and San Juan River, south of today's Pagosa Springs near the Colorado-New Mexico border, and near Chimney Rock. And he felt that the third and final presidio, or large fortification, should be near today's Provo in Utah, on the Utah Lake. That's where they spent time in the land of Tehuayo. If Tehuayo didn't really exist, the Spanish would go ahead and build it. That second fortification, though, the one near Pagosa Springs, uh, Mierey Pacheco's ultimate goal with that one would have been a fortified city, wherefore to put all the newly relocated, after they brought them off their mesas in mass, but to relocate all of the Hopi people. A nice fenced-in camp, where they could concentrate all of those American Indians who listened to their ancient ones and not the Spanish. He also mentioned to the king that the Mokwai would probably make great slaves as they worked on the Navajo River's fields. Hmm. I think he'd been talking with Escalante a little too much about them Hopi. Or maybe the fact that the Hopi could live out there without a care in the world in regards to the Spanish. That was a black mark on the map he was making of the American Southwest. But I guess at what the time was technically the Spanish Northwest. Nothing would come of these plans, though. I mean, not really. That small fort in Yuma didn't amount to much, and it wouldn't save Garza's life. Even the governor of New Mexico, Mindanueta, if you'll remember, thought going out into the wilderness to convert and conquer more Indians was a foolhardy idea. So no presidios would be built in the lands they explored. Besides, where would they get the funds? I'm about to explain to you the state of Spain and Spain in the New World, very shortly. A year later, in 1778, a new governor of New Mexico arrived, a Juan Bautista de Anza, after he replaced Mindanueta. Although, at nearly the same time, New Mexico would lose its title of kingdom and ultimately become just a colony. Therefore, Anza wouldn't be governor per se, but rather just captain general, and no longer under the control of the viceroy, but under control of a new territory, a territory known as the Internal Provinces, the deepest provinces. Anza's new boss would be the French-born Spanish politician and soldier Comandancia General de las Provincias Internas, el Caballero Teodoro de Croix. Nonetheless, Juan Bautista de Anza would go on to become, according to Briggs, quote, the greatest Indian fighter and ablest peacemaker in all New Mexico history, down through and to the days of the United States. End quote. It turns out, Anza, this greatest of Indian fighters, he and Mierre Pacheco were very close buddies, and even distant cousins, through the Don's wife, Estefania. In fact, Anza would later give Mierre the official epithet distinguido, or distinguished, to add to his other titles. He also gave him the title of exempt soldier of the Royal Presidio of Santa Fe. That exempt part meant he did not have to do any garrison chores, 
which is nice considering his advanced age and the fact that those chores probably were no fun. But also, the man got to carry a sword around, which, that's pretty awesome. He also promoted Mierei Pacheca's son to squad leader. His other son, Manuel, a painter, enlisted at this time. So, it's the three amigos, Mierei amigos, and they would spend a lot of time together in Santa Fe after years of being separated throughout the territory. Kessel writes of Anza, quote, Among fellow colonists, Anza always inspired a mix of admiration and resentment. Natives of the Kingdom of New Mexico resented the fact that he was a Sonorense, born in the mere province of Sonora. Worse, he governed with an iron will. End quote. Anza's father was killed by Apaches when Anza was only four years old. So he was raised by some Basque elites in Sonora, before obviously following an officer's career from cadet to lieutenant colonel. Revenge wasn't going to serve itself. A year after arriving to the colony of Nuevo Mexico, Anza would amass an army of 600 Spanish soldiers with an auxiliary force of Utes and Hickoria Apache Indians, numbering around 200. And with this army, he went off to fight the Comanches and their legendary chief, Cuerno Verde, or Greenhorn, on account of his headdress having a leather horn affixed to the forehead, like a unicorn, kind of. Apparently, his father had worn it. Possibly even his grandfather had worn this strange horned headdress. Well, it is completely unknown, since the name of the soldiers weren't recorded, but while it may not be 100% that Mierre Pacheco was one of the soldiers, the map made of the war sure does look a lot like the one he made for the expedition. And the countless other maps he'd made. It's a pretty safe bet that he was there. Well, that and combined with the familial and friendly relation with the governor, Anza. All that leads historians to believe without a doubt that the three Miera amigos were among those who fought. They not only fought that battle, but they won a resounding victory against the rebel group of Comanches led by Cuerno Verde. Briggs sums up the battle. Anza, in August 1779, moved up the Rio Grande's west bank and onto the Arkansas River, the first recorded Hispano use of this route. The campaigners climbed the Rockies front range just south of Pikes Peak, espying Comanche quarry from the heights. They overwhelmed a rancheria of about 120 lodges in the foothills. Cuerna Verde, indeed, had left recently to raid New Mexico, Comanche prisoners said. Three days south near modern Pueblo, Colorado, the New Mexicans caught up with the fully accoutred Cuerno Verde, his horse curveting spiritedly, and a bodyguard of fifty warriors. Trapped in a forested ravine, the Comanches dropped behind their horses and made a defense as brave as it was glorious, said Anza. Greenhorn was slain. The commander had administered to the Comanches their most telling defeat ever. End quote. As brave as it was glorious. Ah, the way we used to view our adversaries was quite honorable. Anza returned to Santa Fe after the battle, complete with the trophy of Cuerno Verde's greenhorn headdress. After presenting it to the crowd, Anza handed it over to De Croix, who handed it over to the king, 
who supposedly handed it over to the Pope. So it's probably sitting still to this day in some vault in the Vatican. Mietere Pacheco, our famed veteran and warrior and mapmaker, artist, all-around Renaissance man. He would die in Santa Fe in 1785 at 71 years old, with many titles and accomplishments under his belt and a nice family and a great legacy. Our friend John Kessel would say of M&P in his time in 18th century New Mexico that he was, quote, one of the most versatile and fascinating figures, end quote. I cannot help but agree. Briggs begins the last section of his book, A Magnificent Failure? Question mark? I mean, he doesn't mean it, as he goes on to describe the effects Mierda's map had on the territory, the kingdom, and later the United States and her many explorers and settlers. But on the surface, the expedition does seem like a total and complete failure. So I'm going to use a long and a great quote from Briggs, as usual, to sum up the expedition's successes and failures. Despite mountain, canyon, and fierce river, no shattering of limb, no loss of life. Despite dispute and sullen disagreement, no breakdown in unity and command. New Indians aplenty, but without noise of arms, none of the carnage that would bloody the thrust of manifest destiny. What had our expedition contributed to Spain's desperate effort to solidify territory? Their last gasp winning of the West? No road was open from Santa Fe to Monterey. The firmest of commitments flouted. No fathers and Hispanos were sent to the Utes and Paiutes. The Hopis continued as obdurate as ever. The Havasupais and more westerly tribes were not even visited. Of stated objectives, aside from mingling with previously unvisited Indians, only the mysterious colony was reached. Or was it? Of unstated objectives, undiscovered was magnificent Copalatehuayo, unseen the great sea of the west, unprospected the Sierra Azul. Ah, but this exception, the great river, nay, great rivers of the west. Nor would little Spanish effort come of the struggles and wonderment experienced by our twelve men in the Laguna lad, Joaquin. It was as though Columbus had made his first momentous voyage, then failed to sail back those three times more. As though Spain, once having heard of the Admiral's tropical islands and strange peoples, had lost all curiosity and interest. End quote. Oh, he's such a fun writer. I'm going to have to look for more books by Briggs. The expedition did not lose a single man, and in fact they picked up a new one. Although, as I stated before, his outcome is unknown, the young man. Hopefully he made it back home to his people. So the crew explored over 2,000 miles, and they influenced later explorers. That is their success, essentially. But possibly even more important for us, you and I, they successfully excited our appetites for adventure. The year of the expedition, 1776, is a good reminder of what lay ahead for Spain and New Mexico and consequently, the New World in general. To the east, on the shores of the Atlantic Ocean, a nation had literally just been formed that would one day dwarf in power what the empires of that time could ever even imagine. 
Even then, during the DNE expedition, the start of that American Revolutionary War would eventually use up Spanish resources as they fought against their current enemy, the Protestant English. The Spanish would open their Caribbean ports to Patriot privateers and move weapons and ammunition up the Mississippi River all the way to the Ohio River. They'd arm Indians who were allied with the Americans. They gave sanctuary to American rangers. But all of this came at a price. Even more Spanish resources were being spent on the constant protection of New Mexico, and Mexico herself, from the nearly never-ending destruction, raids, and death from the Comanche, Apache, and others. Anza would be sent to end rebellions by the Hopis, who had, because of the aforementioned drought, allied themselves with their enemies, the Navajo. Those that didn't fight began trickling into the pueblos at the Rio Grande. Oddly enough, some of the Hopi caciques blamed the drought and their current awful predicament that would almost destroy the Hopi. They blamed it on their own ill treatment of the man, the great wanderer, Father Garces. They blame it on the way they treated him way back in 1776. By the time Anza arrived at the Hopi Mesas, he only counted five towns, down from seven when Escalante visited, and only 738 Hopis remaining in those five towns. Less than a tenth of the population Dominguez and Escalante had recorded. In 1779, a Massive push to drive the English from the Gulf of Mexico and the Louisiana Territory would force the Spanish to raise an immense amount of capital. Almost 4,000 pesos, and not an substantial amount, was raised by the New Mexicans alone for the war effort. It was all for naught in the end. 120 years later, the Americans would use an accident, a lie, and the battle cry, Remember the Maine! to further dislodge the Spanish from their remaining strongholds on those islands, the New World, and beyond. Manifest destiny. Spain would lose Mexico, and by extension the colonies, to the north long before that, though. In 1821, when Mexico gained its independence from the European crown, that's when it all came crashing down. That would be only 45 years after our expedition. But even before that, Napoleon would upend the European continent after the French Revolution, further weakening Spain and turning it into a Bonaparte vassal state, and forcing it to once again fight the English. Because of the Napoleonic Wars, France would also lose their hold on the New World, or rather sell it to Thomas Jefferson, and ride out from under Spain's nose, who apparently had some sort of arrangement with France about the territory. Great Britain will rise to encompass a larger and wealthier empire than the French and Spanish combined, but will also eventually lose a good amount, but not all, of its influence in the Americas. Manifest destiny indeed. Russia's American colonies never really took off, and would eventually, too, be part of the United States after they sell Alaska. Although a settlement was created 85 miles north of San Francisco, Despite trading between the Spanish and the Russians near the settlement known as Fort Ross, despite trade being outlawed by the crown, the trading was both welcome 
and enjoyed by the locals, the Spanish. Briggs writes of the arrangement, quote, It was tovarish and compadre, end quote. Both words meaning comrade in their respective languages. Tovarish. And speaking of comrades, much of our comrades, the DNA expedition's trail, that route Dominguez, Escalante, and the others, most of their route would, by 1847, become under the control of the theodemocracy known as Deseret, ruled by Brigham Young. And a few years after, after that, all of New Mexico and the Southwest, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, the entirety of the Dominguez and Escalante's expedition explored territory, and even Monterey, California, where they never made it. All of the land in between Monterey and Santa Fe, all of it, would come under control of the largest empire the world has yet to see. Manifest destiny completed. Certainly, this new empire will never fail. For now, I am done with the Spanish in the American Southwest. I began with the original inhabitants of this continent. I migrated to the Chacoans and their contemporaries, and then the Puebloans, and then the Spanish. While doing so, I formed an almost complete peek into the history of the Four Corners, especially New Mexico. In essence, accidentally, I told a 20,000-year history, maybe 45,000-year history of the state and surrounding lands. New Mexico, the land of enchantment. It's one of my favorite places on earth, and I hope to call it home soon. I hope you have enjoyed listening to the stories from that storied region. My next episode will be over the mystery of Everett Ruiz, the vagabond explorer and adventurer who, in the 1930s, disappeared in the American Southwest. Somewhere in the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. Somewhere in the places I've been describing through this series. He met people that I've talked about. He searched for ruins I've discussed. He truly lived a free life. Until he lost that life. He influenced many people, including the great writer and adventurer Edward Abbey. He influenced David Roberts. Others, including myself. So stay tuned, and I will see you again in the American Southwest.